can go ahead and be seated. I'm wondering, I feel like the microphone is not up very high today. And can you all hear me okay? Can you hear all right? Yeah, so-so. There we go. That sounds more like the ticket. Thank you. One of the stories that we like to joke about in my family is the way my brother was nearly switched at birth. It came about in this way. My mother had him at the uh, big Henry Ford Hospital in downtown Detroit. And um, as is common, after the travail of childbirth and after she had spent some time bonding with her new baby, she gave him to the nurse who, you know, took, you know, they took weighed, measured, all that good stuff, and then took him to the uh, nursery, right? And after she slept for a little bit, woke up, wanted to hold her baby again, and so asked the nurse to bring the baby back to her room. And the minute she came in, my mother had this moment of panic. <laughs> this is not my child. Now, I know a mother's instincts are never to be, you know, uh, reckoned with in this, uh, you know, ever, basically. But there was actually a very distinguishing mark that even the casual observer would have seen, this is not her baby. See, this is what happened. As it turns out, believe it or not, there were two Hoskins born at the hospital that night. There's one major difference, though, between the other Hoskins baby and the other Hoskins family and ourselves. The other Hoskins were African-American. Now, as the story goes, as the story goes, the nurse herself actually, you know, as she, you know, whoop, you know, not, not, maybe not the right baby. Right name, wrong child, right? How crazy is that? But uh, as we come to our readings this week, this final Sunday in Advent, we are actually introduced by Isaiah to another instance, if you will, of potentially right name, wrong child. What do I mean by that? Right name, wrong child. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 7 with me. Let me explain. See, in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah has been sent by God to King Ahaz, who is king of Judah at the time, to confront his faithlessness, basically. Ahaz, by the way, was one of the worst kings in the history of the nation. And at the beginning of chapter 7, see the tribe of Judah, his kingdom, and its land, which is about the bottom two-thirds of present-day Israel and Palestine, it was a separate kingdom from the rest of Israel, and Israel had a separate king, whose name happens to be Pekah at this time. And here in Isaiah 7, Ahaz, the king of Judah, has learned that Pekah, the Israelite king, has actually made an alliance with reason, the king of Damascus, to march against Jerusalem. So Isaiah was sent to Ahaz first to tell him basically not to worry. He was told, God will protect you. In 65 years, about one generation, those two kingdoms are going to actually be wiped off the map. So you don't need to be worried about that. Ahaz, however, worried. <laughs> and was apparently unconvinced because he sends delegates to the Assyrian emperor seeking an alliance with him, sort of to be safe in the shadow of the world's superpower of the time. And so we come to our text, 
where Isaiah is sent now a second time to Ahaz. And we read in verse 10 to say, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Basically, Ahaz, if you're having trouble believing this prophetic word that God has given you, ask for some sort of tangible sign that will confirm it to you. And God will give it. But Ahaz frankly, feigns faithfulness, the big liar, probably because he's actually already put his own plans in motion and has already gone to Assyria or sent delegates. And so he says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord God to the test. And that's where we come to that familiar Advent and Christmas text. And he, Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, that is Ahaz in your dynasty, is it too little for you to weary men that you must weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, you didn't ask for it. God's going to give it to you anyway. The Lord your God will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Oof. Next time you see, you know, Emmanuel, God with us on Christmas cards, think for a moment about that. Next time we sing about Emmanuel, our hope, think about that. Because in the original context in which Isaiah was speaking those words, those are not cozy, comforting, snuggle-by-the-fire kind of images, are they? Emmanuel, which does in fact mean God with us, as Matthew told us, in Isaiah's context meant the sign of a visitation of God's judgment upon the faithlessness of Ahaz and upon all of Judah. And as Isaiah originally utters these words, he expects them to be fulfilled in the short term. See, we lift this single verse, thinking we're following Matthew's cue. I'll get that, to that in a minute. But we lift this single verse and, and we apply it to the Christmas story. But as we do so, understand that we miss something, something very important that informs how we are to understand this title of Emmanuel, and actually important to understand how Matthew is actually using it. Because read that last verse from our text again. He will be called Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Isaiah does not have Jesus in mind originally as he's speaking these words. He's talking about current events in his own day, the 8th century B.C. He's saying that this sign, Emmanuel, that God will provide will be a child imminently born, but at least not, not for at least nine months, right? He says his mother is actually currently a virgin, so it's some somewhere nine months or beyond from here, but... Be, uh, before he's, or I guess, as he's eating solid foods, but before he is morally responsible for himself, these things are going to take place. And guess what? Those things did take place. This is talking about events in the 8th century B.C. Isaiah originally is not talking about Jesus as he utters these words. 
So, right name, wrong child. The, Isaiah, uh, the child that Isaiah is speaking about does have a name, though. Mothers who may still expect to have children, bear this one in mind. Swift to the spoil, or yeah, swift to the spoil, speedy to the plunder. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Not just the name of a great actor, who I would change it to Maher Shalal as well. Shorten it up. But he's um, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, is Matthew trying to, uh, I mean, is Matthew confusing us when he uses this? Well, let's talk about this, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. He comes up in chapter 8 of Isaiah's prophecy in verse 3. Isaiah writes, And I went to the prophetess, the heretofore virgin spoken of in chapter 7, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my mother or my father, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Right name, wrong child. The sign of Emmanuel was originally referring to this prophetic child born to Isaiah and his wife. Wrong virgin too, obviously. Born as a prophetic sign of the timing of God's wrath and judgment on the king of Israel and of Damascus. A sign to demonstrate to King Ahaz and all of Judah as well that the Lord means business. He means what he says. And his prophecies are real, reliable, and not to be taken lightly. So, if this name... Emmanuel was originally a prophetic name for this child, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What is Matthew doing, taking it and applying it to Jesus? Is he trying to confuse us? Is he himself confused? No, of course not. As a matter of fact, it's clear from the rest of his gospel that Matthew, while he, yes, came to faith uh, as a tax collector, sort of a less than faithful Jew, he certainly knew his Old Testament. It's clear from the way he writes. And what's more, it's clear that he was writing his gospel, the gospel of St. Matthew, to a predominantly Jewish audience. So all of them would have been well aware of everything I just told you about the original context of this Emmanuel prophecy. Matthew is neither confusing nor confused. In fact, he wants us to have all of that as background as he takes that title and applies it to this new child that is to come, the Christ. Because as Jesus came into the world, he came as a light shining into the midst of darkness. We'll read in this very text that he came to save his people from their sins. But he also came as Emmanuel, God with us, a sign among us of God's presence to bring justice and righteousness to light. Jesus came as a sign of God's judgment upon the darkness. In two weeks after we've celebrated the birth of Christ, we'll celebrate his holy name. And we'll remember when Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to be circumcised and to be legally named. And at that time, we'll remember the aged prophet Simeon 
to whom God had declared he would not die until his eyes had beheld his Savior. And Simeon will take the child in his arms and he will utter a prophecy over him. He'll say, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. He turns to Mary and he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As we come into these final few days of Advent preparation, looking to our celebration of Christ's first coming and His incarnation, we prepare with this reminder that yes, Christ came to bring peace upon the earth and goodwill toward humankind, But that path toward peace and goodwill was a stormy one. It was divisive. As we heard from the lips of Jesus in the gospel reading last week, the kingdom of God suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. It is opposed. And that's why St. Matthew evokes this image, this reference to the Emmanuel prophecy and says, yes, Isaiah was speaking about events in his own day, but he was pointing forward as well, even though he himself could not see it. As I often like to point out, reading biblical prophecy is like looking at the mountain skyline to the west. Right? I just talked about this a couple of weeks ago. From this distance, the, the dimensions and contours and, and distances, they're not clear. I mean, you know, we have those days where it looks like actually that skyline is like painted on the wall, Right? You don't see the depth and dimension. But as you get closer, even as you get into the mountains, the realities of the topography begin to reveal themselves. Isaiah was speaking very specifically about events in his own day, but he was also inspired by the Spirit of God speaking through him, pointing to something much larger, much grander that he himself could not see from his vantage point. He didn't know it but he was also speaking of the Christ who was to come. Because when Jesus came to the earth, he came once again as Emmanuel, a sign of God's just judgment. He came as a portent of God's casting down of the institutions of ancient Israel, which had once again been corrupted. He came as a sign of judgment upon his people, to reveal those who would truly turn to God and his Christ and those who would not. When Jesus came, when Jesus comes, even today, he comes to reveal hearts. In Advent, we often talk about preparing to celebrate Christ's coming at Christmas and also preparing with the end in mind, right, for his return his second advent at the end of all things. But I was reminded in a conversation this week about the third sense of advent that we too often overlook, the coming of Christ to us here and now by his Holy Spirit. It's this coming to us that the Lord uses to reveal, to uncover, to bring to light what is in our hearts. Emmanuel, God with us, means that Jesus comes into our midst to bring revelation. 
And very often we are challenged by what such revelation uncovers. You see, we can understand Jesus and his work rightly if we push his work as Emmanuel aside. I don't know about you, but there are secret corners of my heart that I would just as soon not see brought out into the light of day. But God with us means, by his spirit, God within us. And that means allowing access to all of those dark corners, all those dusty places. And that can feel, that can be intensely uncomfortable. Yet God knows that is the only way that we as deceived and deceptive human beings can be delivered and redeemed. It starts with the uncomfortable light of revelation. Jesus himself will say in John's gospel, I've come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The redemption of all things begins with the light of revelation. Just as we began this Advent journey recognizing that Advent invites us to embrace the dissonance that we feel in a world that is far from warm, cozy, and okay, restoration looks first like recognition. Getting radically honest about how not okay things are in our world and getting radically honest with ourselves and God and our community about how not okay things are in our own lives, in our own hearts. But as much as none of us likes the thought of our secret thoughts being laid bare before Almighty God, it's that image, Emmanuel, God with us, that prepares us for the very restoration that we long for. This is why Matthew draws in this prophetic name precisely where and how he does. We read in our gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord's salvation, the Lord's deliverance, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we often read that and we think, well, yeah, uh, Isaiah was talking about a, a virgin bearing a son. That's only half of it, though. That's only half of what Matthew wants us to get from that text. Yes, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, but you will call his name Emmanuel. Because his name will also be Jesus, God's salvation. Matthew evokes the prophetic name Emmanuel by way of explaining the significance of that name, Yeshua, the Lord delivers or saves. Jesus came into the world as the Lord's means for delivering his people and all of humankind from their sins. What sins? The very ones that he would come to uncover and reveal within them. Jesus is the one who comes to us both to uncover and reveal, lay bare our hearts, as well as the one who comes to save and heal and deliver and restore us 
in the face of what we find there. Both sides of that equation are necessary to balance it. My apologies to the students for using a math analogy after finals. Too soon, right? But both sides of the equation are necessary. Without Emmanuel, we would live in ignorance of all that is within us that needs to be drawn out into the light of day. And without Yeshua, we would despair at what we find when it's done. So to be fair, in the final estimation, this is not, in fact, the case of right name, wrong child. Isaiah clearly did not have Jesus in mind as he first spoke. Yet God knew, God knew in the fullness of time that his own son would come and perfectly fulfill all that that name pointed to. In his perfect timing, God would send a child who would be both the sign of judgment as well as his instrument of healing and salvation. And so today as we draw into these final, well, let's be honest, about 48 hours of Advent preparation, I invite you to know and to embrace Jesus once again as Emmanuel, God with you, to do the work of revelation, to bring the conviction of his Holy Spirit as he shines his light into the dark places of your life. I want to challenge you to take some quiet time in the next 48 hours to sit with Emmanuel and ask him by his Holy Spirit to speak, to shine his light of revelation and to speak where necessary his voice of conviction into your life. I know that's a scary thing. But I'd, I'd invite you to do it. And seek his voice as I say, of conviction, not of condemnation. Because as we invite him to come and do that work, we also invite him to come in the fullness and in the power of Yeshua, the Lord's deliverance. The light that shines in the darkness, the one who will also say, behold, I am making all things new. So I invite you to pray with me. And Lord, I stand before you and commit myself to that work. And I invite you, brothers and sisters, to do the same. Lord, we often sing about hungering for your presence and wanting to see you come among us. And we get excited when we see that in the gifts of your spirit moving. We like to avoid it when it means hearing your voice of conviction. But Lord, in these last hours of this holy Advent season, I invite your voice of conviction to come among us, your people. That we would know you as the revealer of hearts so that we can know you as the Lord's deliverance the restorer of all things, the one who is making all things new. So, Lord, it's to you that we do pray. 
our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.